welcome everyone. Thank you all for joining us here today for this important discussion. We'd also like to extend our gratitude to all of our panelists who are here today as well. My name is Shannon and I have the pleasure of introducing our esteemed panel and we also have the honor of having professors Nicholas Bella and Dr. Rachel Birdmom who will be sharing the results of their recent study that they conducted to help understand the experience of family lawyers as a result of the pandemic and the adoption of virtual technology and family court. First, we have Professor Nicholas Bella, who has been a law professor at Queen's University since 1980 and is a leading expert on family and children's law. His work is frequently cited by all levels of court, including the Supreme Court, and much of his research is interdisciplinary, including a present project on the effect of the pandemic and the evolution of Ontario's family justice system and access to justice, being undertaken with Professor Claire Houston and Dr. Rachel Birnbaum, who is also with us here today. So Dr. Rachel Birnbaum is a distinguished university professor at King's University College at Western University in London, Ontario. She has extensive clinical practice and research experience in working with children and families of separation and divorce. And she has presented nationally and internationally on parenting assessments, child legal representation, children's participation in family disputes, and on the intersection between law and social work. We'll also be hearing from some of the Family Law Ad Hoc Steering Committee members. So first off, we have Brian Galbraith, who is the owner of Galbraith Family Law, which has six offices in Ontario and 16 collaborative lawyers. Brian is the president of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and has served on its board for several years. He also has helped train hundreds of collaborative professionals and conducted workshops on the international stage. Next, we have Ram Shankar, and Ram Shankar has experience as a lawyer for the past 28 years, starting from the time when he was called to the bar in 1994. And Mr. Shankar has two master's degrees under his belt, a master's of law from Dalhousie University and a master's of development economics, again from Dalhousie. Next, we have Gene C. Coleman, who has been practicing family law since 1979. He has authored many legal articles and has served on a number of committees that have addressed access to justice issues. He passionate, passionately believes in procedural fairness, and that commitment to fairness brings him here today for this presentation. And last but not least, we have Russell, who is the founder and senior partner at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And with 25 years of experience, he uses his knowledge and expertise to serve his clients in all aspects of family law and helps them in coping with the difficulties of separation and divorce. And Russell has also authored four books on separation and divorce and is a fully trained collaborative practice lawyer. He also shares his knowledge and experience by speaking at conferences on collaborative practice, marketing, technology, and the law. And just a quick note before I pass things over to Russell is that the panelists will also be answering audience questions as time allows. So if you would like to submit your questions, you can submit them through the Q&A. And uh, once the presentation starts, I will be available off screen for any general questions or any technical support you may need. I'll pass things over to you now, Russ. Thank you, Shannon, uh, for those kind words. To stay on for a minute. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. So this is the first poll we run. I want to get an understanding of who our audience is. So we're going to give everybody a minute or two to uh, put your answers. But Shannon, I understand after today's presentation, there'll be some show notes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I'll be following up tomorrow just with uh, resources that are mentioned today throughout the presentation, as well as uh, the survey that uh, Professor Bella and Birnbaum will be speaking to. Um, so that will come tomorrow um, to everyone who's registered for the event, so you can expect that. 
Yeah, and I want to thank everybody in our audience for attending. Usually we have four or five polls, but I think we're only going to do maybe two today. Is that right, Shannon? We want to present. Yes, we have two polls. We want to present the uh, the findings um, from the survey, and then at the end of our presentation, we're going to or the professor's uh, presentation, we're going to give our audience a chance to give us their thoughts, and then we're going to go through our panel and uh, we're, we're going to have some input as well. Um, our, I think at the end of Jean's presentation, we're going to run the poll. So thank you, Shannon. Um, let's make a start. So Professor Bell, or well, let's see where our poll was our results are first. Uh, okay, 68% family lawyer, legal professional, 12% uh, practicing in another area of law, 18% uh, another field, and other, you can put in the Q&A. So thank you, everybody, for answering that poll question. Now we're going to flip it over to Professor Ballow, and we're going to um, take a look at the survey results. I'll be presenting with uh, Rachel Birnbaum, who worked on the survey with me. Uh, Claire Houston from Western was also involved in this project, but unfortunately can't be with us today. So we're very grateful to the survey, uh, to those who supported participation in this. We had a very good uh, uh, response rate. A number of organizations were uh, involved and we're certainly grateful to the lawyers who responded. Um, and, and I'm sure many of you on this uh, call today were among them. So the survey that we undertook is intended, it's really part of an ongoing uh, project to look at the effects of the pandemic on family justice uh, and how that will be evolving over time, how that has evolved and how it will be evolving. Uh, and in particular here, uh, surveying uh, how uh, family lawyers have seen the effect of the pandemic and, and now moving out of the pandemic. And particularly, as you'll see at the end, focusing on some policy questions, where should we be going? Uh, so we had uh, about 130 uh, respondents uh, all together. Uh, and uh, as is typical in surveys, most of the respondents were women. A good question whether most family lawyers are women. We're not sure about that. Um, next slide, please. And uh, the vast majority of respondents were white, are white. Um, and this, again, I think pretty well reflects the family bar. As many of you may know, uh, or all of you must realize, uh, the uh, number of the percentage of visible minorities in Ontario is roughly 30% of the population. The bar is is changing more slowly, and I, and I say that myself. Uh, we're seeing change in law schools. Certainly, our, our student population today, our graduates, are more racially diverse, and their their challenges uh, arising out of that. But I think the profession and the bench uh, are and the law schools are adjusting to that. And the respondents are are were uh, a a fairly experienced uh, group, and indeed we see what, uh, and we have the, uh, what one might call the graying of the bar, uh, um, that uh, most of the respondents were, have been in family practice uh, at least 20 years. Uh, and most uh, uh, the, the, of the respondents, and I think that gain this reflects largely the practice of family law, uh, almost half are sole practitioners, or in, and, and certainly at, or in small firms, uh, a number uh, are in larger firms. Um, and it, the, the, this, this survey, we were very pleased, uh, legal aid clinics 
uh, picked this up and we had about 30 respondents uh, from legal aid clinics. And as I'll discuss in a moment, they understand we have a different perspective on the effect of the pandemic and virtual family court. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and the survey, uh, the respondents were around Ontario, uh, as you can see, the largest number in the GTA, uh, but we felt we had pretty good representation from across uh, the province. So the first substantive question that we asked is about how people are finding online filing. And I should say, uh, what we see is that uh, a majority uh, consider that things are going pretty well or very well with online filing, but a, a significant minority disagree. And I, I believe this is an area where we're seeing a lot of um, challenges uh, as we've moved from a, a paper-based filing system to one that is electronic. Some parts, some places, the court staff have done well in doing this and are very responsive and supportive. In other places, um, the court staff, which were in fairness, hired in a paper-based environment, have not uh, have had uh, on, from the perspective of the staff probably have had challenges in doing that. From the perspective of lawyers, have often been um, you know rejecting documents uh, without saying what the problem is or uh, not giving enough specificity about what the problems are. Uh, I think that this is uh, the experience across Ontario is suggesting that. Uh, this is something that local bench and bar uh, committees uh, really need to work on. Uh, if it's a problem in your area, uh, it, it, the work sitting down with the judiciary and ultimately meeting with the having the court staff involved uh, through an appropriate process um, is very important. It, it It's a challenging area because the court staff, one must realize, one thinks, oh, the judges uh, tell the court staff what to do. No, the court staff are independent, unionized. They have their own uh, administrative structure, but they're ultimately uh, responsive and want to be supportive. But there's a lot of challenges there in some areas. Corresponding with the issues around uh, online filing is case lines, which, of course, is a a different but related system. Uh, here, a little more concern about case lines than about online filing. Again, some variation across, uh, uh, certainly across, to some extent across regions. And here, um, I think that this is obviously a, 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 an issue at a higher governmental and court-based level. Um, and we may be seeing some uh, evolution but the basic idea that it's going to be an online court-based uh, system is going to remain. The question is, how can it be improved? And there's certainly work for uh, the bench bar and government to be working on uh, in this regard. I know there are some specific issues with case lines, but it's not going away. I mean, the system is not going away. It might evolve, um, but it's an important part of uh, uh, shifting to an, uh, an electronic uh, environment. And I should say some other court systems, one looks at the federal court, for example, uh, they probably have better document management uh, than we have in the family courts in Ontario. So it's certainly a work in progress. So here we were asking about uh, how lawyers feel about having uh, clients uh, attend meetings with them virtually uh, rather than coming into their offices. And most uh, lawyers strongly or somewhat agree with this. And I should say the disagreement 
is primarily in people in legal aid offices. So here we see this divergence and understandably uh, most uh, private clients um, and even some on legal aid certificates can attend uh, a, a meeting with their lawyer virtually um, and the, the client can scan documents and, and, and screen share and so on. The reality in legal aid clinics and, when, and not just clinics, but mainly uh, duty counsel is it's, it's very hard for uh, duty counsel to have meaningful interaction with many clients if they're not actually in the office. This was a huge problem in the pandemic when people could not come into offices. Uh, obviously, we're seeing change now, but I think the vast majority of lawyers in private practice prefer uh, having clients come uh, being meeting virtually and recognizing that, of course, that's going to vary by the client. Uh, and how do clients feel about this? Again, uh, the vast majority or substantial majority of lawyers in private practice think that clients, uh, for both practical reasons like the cost and time of coming to an office, but also the comfort. Uh, I'm sure you know many lawyers have had the experience of interviewing someone in their office and the client saying, oh, I, I need that. Yes, I have a document, but I don't have it here. The clients at their home, they're, they're likely to see that. Of course, there are challenges with some clients who may not have separated uh, and want to meet with the lawyer in person or uh, and so on. And again, legal aid, uh, duty counsel uh, clearly uh, recognize that many of the clients are going to prefer coming to the courts, uh, to their office, which is often in the courthouse. So in here, we come to the question about um, preference for court hearings, virtual court hearings. And again, a substantial majority of lawyers uh, prefer uh, having a virtual court proceeding rather than going to, to family court. Uh, significant savings, as we'll see in terms of time, money uh, uh, for the clients, uh, and overall efficiency. Um, here, the, the variation is partly uh, the uh, duty counsel issues. Um, partly, there are some lawyers who, for a variety of reasons, uh, prefer uh, attending in court, but th they're a, a clear minority. Uh, and again, most clients in here, even more than the lawyers, uh, prefer virtual court attendance. This is, of course, the lawyer's perception of what their clients want, and um, other research has and, and will be done on it. But for most clients, again, they're the practical issues of uh, uh, traveling to court, particularly if they don't live close to the court or don't own a car, um, and uh, which is a situation for many clients. Also, the questions of comfort um, and or safety. So we'll come back to the issue of family violence. So a significant uh, uh, preference of clients for uh, virtual court attendance. Uh, and here we're getting into questions of, uh, this is the first of a series of questions about the cost uh, of access to justice and the effect of uh, allowing or having virtual family court. Um, and so this was just to get a baseline. Uh, and as you can see, most family lawyers, and I think this is true uh, for those who didn't answer the survey, are in the range of three to five hundred dollars uh, an hour. People who talk about oh, lawyers cost family lawyers cost seven, eight, a thousand dollars an hour. That is true of a, a small percentage of lawyers. Uh, I think primarily in in uh, in the downtown Toronto area. Uh, and you see, I don't charge by the hour. That was people in the in the uh, clinics. Uh, 
Um, thanks. Next slide. So we tried to, one of the things in this study, you'll see this in the slides, in the next few slides, we tried to segment out what was happening at different stages of the pandemic, which we uh, did by year. The first, and, and um, personally, I think others looking back, can we remember that first uh, most challenging year and then the the, the period of uh, slow opening up and, and more significant opening up in this past year. Um, and uh, what we'll see in these next three slides is uh, there were some increase in fees during this uh, period of time. Um, uh, but, uh, and here in the first year, yes, a small, a relatively small percentage increased their fees during the pandemic. And here again, the second year, uh, what we call the, uh, the limited access period, um, as people were starting to get the vaccine, again, slightly more increased, um, but uh, uh, most no change. Uh, and the third one, uh, more increased in this past year. And overall, I think it's fair to say, uh, over the last three years, there have been some increase in fees per hour, which of course reflects uh, an enormous amount of inflation. Uh, there are very, very few things uh, other than university tuition that have not increased in price dramatically over the last three years. Um, we didn't get into the details of it, but I, I'm not sure that in real terms we've seen an increase in uh, family lawyers' fees uh, over the past three years. Uh, and here, in fact, I think we're, I'm turning it over to, uh, to Rachel. Thank you, Nick. Um, so as, as Nick said, we had a fairly robust um, sample. In total, there was about 141 participants. But as many of you know, not everybody answers every question. So these next uh, set of questions about net income, there was a, a drop, not significant drop of people answering, uh, but there was some drop. So this is asking the question again, um, sort of from the beginning of the pandemic, um, sort of what's your, did your net income change during the, uh, during the, uh, during the uh, pandemic? And you've got, you know, quite a, quite a, a spread, um, even spread of increasing um, your net income, decreasing as well as um, no change. Um, but the, if you look at it in terms of percentages, um, there was about a 29% increase and a 34% decrease, with 37% saying there was, uh, there was no change. With respect to income uh, change during the uh, opening up, uh, the limited sort of access period, um, you'll again see uh, sort of a, a variation of almost an um, increase of 33%. A decrease of about 25% and a no change of about 42% um, in terms of during this period of time. And then finally, the uh, looking at it from the kind of opening up period, um, you'll see a significant, there was an increase of almost uh, 36%, a decrease of about 19%, and, and again, a significant um, no change in net income during the opening of about uh, 44%. So then we turn to how much does your average client save in terms of court, in terms of per court appearance when the when attendance is virtual. And again, there's um, 
fortunately, there's no increased cost, but there, but a significant number said that there was uh, no difference, almost about 28%, um, and a greater than uh, $2,000 was about uh, 7% 7, 7 in, uh, in total. Um, in terms of your average client, in terms of saving, in terms of court appearances, um, again, there was uh, a significant no difference and about a, um, from about, the next one was about from 2,500 on about 20, 20% uh, versus um, up of, of 5,000 or more about uh, 13%, uh, sorry, 18, 13% was looking at the numbers. Um, which is, you know, which is kind of interesting in terms of the amount of uh, client savings um, of the fees for, for, uh, for court attendances. Um, when you shift to the remote delivery of family services in terms of providing, um, allowing you to provide more services, clearly um, it really helped lawyers across the province reach out to many, many Juris, uh, many, many jurisdictions. And when I combine the significantly more and the somewhat more, you're looking at um, so close to about 50%, which is, uh, which is quite significant. So how has um, remote delivery impacted? Um, you've got, again, quite a large um, Quite, quite a large number when you compare, when you collapse significantly and, and somewhat more into about, again, 50, uh, 54% um, impacting with respect to, uh, with respect to the uh, settlement. No, sorry, with respect to um, uh, the number of clients being, uh, the number of clients being served. Now, with respect to settlement, um, it's again, quite sort of evenly um, separated out when you've got significantly support, uh, strongly support and support, um, you've got close to, uh, you know, close to uh, 30, 40%, which these are, you know, quite, quite significant. Um, now, the next set of questions are favoring a presumption of in-person for any um, contested proceedings. Um, and it's quite a huge amount. Um, again, when you look at strongly support and support um, of returning. Um, and I know the question might have been awkwardly worded, but I'm hoping, but I but we do believe that it's um, we were looking at in person um, in terms of these contested proceedings. Um, the same thing for a presumption of in-person if one or both parties are um, self-represented, um, which is pretty significant. Um, you know, even again, kind of evenly balanced out to sort of half saying yes, half saying no, some having a neutral position. And this goes back to what uh, Nick spoke up earlier about having some of the um, people who completed the survey from legal aid there's certainly a, a different um, interpretation, and rightly so, in my opinion, um, in terms of in-person uh, versus uh, virtual. Um, but the, you know, while we had a, a good, robust sample, there were no looking at correlations. Again, not causation, but correlations, sort of associations. 
There was no, uh, we looked at the three different time periods. There was no difference. We looked at gender. We even looked at time called to the bar and by gender. Um, there was pretty well no significant. And in this respect, no significant is actually quite significant <laughs> that, you know, that there's no difference between these. Um, although it asks a whole bunch of other questions that we might want to might want to look at later as well. So then we asked some open-ended questions with respect to everybody on the impact of virtual court on family violence and clients with disabilities. And this is where we got um, the vast majority of lawyers, uh, both in um, uh, both in private practice as well as in uh, from legal aid and a lot from legal aid saying that virtual hearings are by, by far much less traumatic for those that are experiencing um, family violence issues, that it's much more comfortable for the clients to be in their homes. They don't have to deal with the person that they feel threatened or issues around safety, that it's, um, that it's, on, that it's online. But again, that the, um, the administration of justice, the courts and the judges need to be sort of aware of this when, uh, when there are issues around um, family violence and why it might be preferable to be virtual, but also across jurisdictions, you know, the differences between the North and the South with respect um, to this particular issue as well of not, you know, some of them not having to travel as far um, with and it being much more comfortable and easier, uh, and especially when it's uh, issues around um, uh, family violence or even mobility issues. You know, people who have mobility issues or cognitive issues, um, sometimes it might be better, um, uh, certainly um, uh, online. Um, but the vast majority talked a lot about um, with respect to family violence, it should perhaps be parceled out um, with it being um, much preferable for it to being virtual um, hearings. Then we asked the last couple of questions on the impact of virtual court on your work as a lawyer and kind of going forward. And again, there was a real mix. I mean, many, many lawyers would much prefer um, having virtual court, that it made sense to them, um, that it was um, uh, saving and saving, uh, there were cost savings, but we still don't have, in, that I believe, any sort of real robust literature or research on what the actual costs are, because they're very difficult sometimes to calculate them, because a lot of it depends on context, whether you're in a, which we asked earlier, whether you're in a, a sole, are you a sole practitioner, are you in a small firm, a mid-sized firm, um, that would make a lot of difference with respect to cost savings and you know, your staff and how many clerks you have and who does what, et cetera. Not easy to carry out, much like it's not easy to carry out for the courts in terms of the cost savings for the courts. Um, uh, and particularly when they don't even have the most up-to-date um, technology um, as, it, as it stands. Um, many people still had issues around the on-filing system and the case lines. And, you know, you have to take a step back. If lawyers are saying, I'm having problems with, you know, getting documents into case line or it being rejected, try and imagine what it's like for those self-represented litigants who this is a whole, I mean, you know, it's hard enough to be a self-rep in court as it is, but now it's being, you're being asked to, you know, put in these documents and they don't all always work. 
And of course, you know, also in doing a lot of uh, the number, the different number of studies that that we have done as a group, finding out that judges sometimes don't even get the information through case lines. Um, that, you know, there's certain documents that don't get in and then they don't see them and you make the assumption that the judge has it when they don't. Um, so there's some real issues going forward around who has what, you know, and um, what's it, what's everybody looking at. And it's almost like you have to start every court appearance of, you know, what documents does everybody have in front of them and what are you looking at, which creates even, even more time. So like every study, that's done, uh, not just our study alone, um, more women typically participate, yet there were no uh, gender differences. And this is only a snapshot of a limited number of lawyers who practice family law across the province of Ontario. Um, and there needs to really be much more research exploring the needs of family violence victims and those with disabilities, cognitive or physical, in trying to access family justice in general, as well as more research about the impact of technology on different populations and geographic locations. We in the south here in Toronto make, you know, we take all of this for granted until there's a storm that happens and then even Toronto folks go, oh my god, we have, you know, my, the electricity is down. But imagine what it's like for people up in, you know, Cochrane or, you know, uh, Thunder Bay, etc. Um, there, there are some real serious issues and we need to have much more research um, around that. So this is really just kind of touching the surface. Nick, I'm gonna turn it back over to you. All right, so um, by way of summary of our, our findings, um, it's clear that the majority of lawyers, particularly those in private practice and their clients, uh, prefer to have virtual meetings with their lawyers uh, in uh, done virtually. Uh, and again, there will be, you know, exceptions and lawyers will govern their practice accordingly. Um, I think lawyers are also starting to, to use technology more for intake, uh, for initial uh, uh, having clients prepare uh, documents and so on. So technology is clearly affecting the practice of family law. Uh, a significant finding that we had was that um, the use of virtual meetings and virtual court has allowed lawyers to service uh, a broader geographic area. And I think this is particularly significant for legal aid, for clients on legal aid certificates. Uh, legal aid uh, has not significantly increased its, its fees. And there is a, a smaller portion of lawyers across the province who are prepared to accept legal aid certificates. And they're certainly not spread around the province. And so it's not uncommon for a client, uh, let's say in uh, uh, Sault Ste. Marie to say, I can't find a lawyer here uh, who will take a legal aid certificate, but there is a lawyer in Toronto who will take this virtually. Um, and that's good for access to justice. I think that many judges in what we can call more remote areas are somewhat more flexible about uh, allowing virtual appearances. And they know if I don't take, allow this legal aid client's lawyer to appear virtually, uh, I will, there'll be no lawyer and there'll be no, effectively no certificate work done in this area. And so we see, I think, more flexibility around that. And we're going to, that's going to be an area that we need to increasingly uh, work on with the, again, the government, Legal Aid Ontario uh, and the judiciary, as well as the bar. 
Um, I think that we've seen in general broadly, although there is some variation and we'd like to have more detail, that virtual court, virtual uh, involvement with clients technology has reduced the cost of providing legal services for individual clients. And this is uh, therefore, you know, virtual court and use of technology is uh, improving access to justice. As Rachel pointed out, this is particularly true for uh, litigants who uh, may have disabilities and problems in traveling to court or being in court, and especially those who may have family violence issues. Um, we certainly see in the survey that there is a, a difference uh, in for different segments of the family bar. So those in private practice, uh, those in more remote areas uh, are having different experience from those uh, who may be legal aid staff lawyers uh, or are in uh, major metropolitan areas. Um, where we see uh, differences of view, at least in this survey, um, is uh, what is the effect, and I think this is a concern for the judiciary as well, uh, is it true that having people in court, for, especially for a settlement conference, but for any conference where there's a discussion about settlement, uh, having people in person in front of the judge uh, is more likely to produce a settlement. Some judges think that. Um, here, uh, the response to the survey had mixed views about the effect of being in person as promoting a settlement. Um, and again, the issue of self-represented litigants um, may be different as lawyers in private practice. Uh, one's experience would be, I think, that most of the files one has, there's a lawyer on the other side. Self-represented litigants are not exceptional, but they're not the most common for a lawyer in private practice. On the other hand, uh, having, from a judge's perspective, there are a lot of litigants where both are self-represented or one is self-represented. Um, clearly, we're in a, a, a transitional stage as a society and even more as a court system. There are differences in criminal court, which I think is pretty well all in person now, except, of course, if for the uh, accused is in detention. Um, and whereas civil proceedings, uh, particularly high-end commercial cases, where some parts of it, uh, international commercial arbitrations are being done increasingly uh, virtually. Family is sort of in this in-between stage. Uh, we, we have a set of policies that are in place. And next slide, please, Rachel. One of the things that we're seeing is, um, in some ways, arguably, Ontario is in a bit of uh, uh, not in a leadership position in this regard. Uh, I have a, I realize it may be hard for some of you to read this. Um, the main thing here is to that, the, and the, the headline captures it all that the Chief Justice of Manitoba, uh, Marianne Rivelin, um, who uh, was recently appointed to that position, has a lot of experience on the bench, and says, you know, in Manitoba, we're using virtual hearings more and more because of issues of remoteness. We have to do that. She also talks about uh, here in this about the value in other court systems, the federal court system. Uh, and I think there is no doubt that uh, Zoom hearings, Zoom appeals uh, are here to stay. The question is, uh, what's going to be the balance? Who's going to be deciding? How is it going to be decided? And uh, as we're going to discuss in a moment, Gina is going to be leading us in discussion. Arguably, the situation uh, in Ontario, particularly in family justice, uh, there's a need for change, um, both in terms of the rules and understandings, also obviously in terms of access to uh, appropriate resources for both the courts 
uh, and litigants. So uh, I think we're, we're done with this presentation. Uh, so thank you very much. We, we, uh, there are emails, we're happy to correspond with people, but we're not taking questions or comments now because we're turning it over, I think, to Gene Coleman. So thank you for your attention. We're happy to hear from any of you individually. Thank you, uh, Nick and Rachel. It's a really insightful survey. And I think it really um, is reflective of what the bar is feeling in this area. Uh, the, for our audience members, if you do have questions, put in the Q&A box. We're gonna save some time at the end, try to go through the Q&A. We did notify the Chief Justices and the Attorney General's Office of this town hall today and hope to share a recording of, our, of this presentation with uh, those two offices. But we're gonna, Gene's gonna take it over and then we're gonna hear from our panel in terms of the survey results and Gene's comments. And we'll have another poll at the end of this. So over to you, Gene, thank you. Thank you, Russell. And thank you, Nick and Rachel. I'm going to give over my views. Our committee has not taken a poll as such. Um, and you please accept them. Uh, this is, you can just glance at the outline of the topics to be covered. I'll be speaking for about 10 minutes. I won't read these, there they are. And let's just go to the next slide. So to recap again, what uh, Professor Nick Ballow was just stating, uh, their research reveals a rather pronounced preference for virtual family justice. The majority of the lawyers and clients seem to appear, seem to prefer virtual court. Virtual court generally reduces cost of resolution of family cases for clients, they told us. Virtual court assists the client who is vulnerable as a result of disability and family violence concerns. Um, the, there is a difference in the ease of accessing technology based on geographic location. And we heard that LAO staff have different concerns than private practice lawyers. And of course we have to take cognizance because legal aid is all important in the family law system. And there is broad support for virtual family court if both parties agree and are represented. According to the lawyers surveyed, we found that the lack of significant legal cost increase, I would say is very puzzling. And I would ask the researchers to please double check their data on that point, because I can know I do know in our firm, just of course, a totally family law firm, we significantly reduce the costs to the client by having virtual hearings. We have a consolidated provincial practice direction for family proceedings in the Superior Court of Justice effective just a few weeks ago. The practice direction applies to all family court proceedings in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice unless they state otherwise in their, in their uh, publication, it replaces all previous directions, Gene, notices, and whatnot. Gene, um, Professor Bala had a comment. Yeah, so I just want to clarify um, uh, that um, we found, and of course we don't have exact figures, which is what Rachel was commenting on, but on the whole, the vast majority of respondents in private practice indicated that their costs, both uh, particularly over the course of a file, 
but also for individual appearances, the vast majority reported that there was a reduction in costs, um, not an increase. There was a tiny number, and it's a good question, you know, why some people said it was more expensive, but the vast majority uh, have said that it's a decrease. I think, by the way, my speculation would be the increase in costs might reflect people who are saying they're having so much trouble with things like case lines that there's actually increasing their costs. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that having uh, uh, in uh, virtual hearings is a is a cost saving for the vast majority of litigants. So that's what lawyers are finding. The other side, of course, or another side, there is um, it may be a bit of a skew how the uh, legal aid duty council views it. So sorry to interrupt, but I did just want to clarify well, that we you. don't need thank to check you. our data. You, we need you. to look back. And 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 and, and fairness, it was a sort of a. Uh, it, it wasn't quite stated as clear as it might have been, but it's very clear if you go back to those slides that there is a cost saving and that virtual court does promote access to justice. I, I said the word increase, and when I said increase, I should have said the lack of a significant legal cost decrease, and I used the wrong word there, and that was on your chart of um, the, resp the responding lawyers. Elsewhere in your paper, you said, well, there was a significant cost decrease, which makes sense. But on your chart of the views of the lawyers polled, many of them did not find a significant legal cost decrease. And I'm just one firm, small firm with a few lawyers, but it was, there was a significant legal cost decrease, which was consistent with other findings in your report. But thanks, Nick. Um, Tracy Pylon asked, do the practice directions apply to the Ontario Court of Justice? No, the, the, uh, they have their own. I'll be talking about that momentarily. Uh, I'm talking now about the Superior Court of Justice uh, direction. Part three of the SCJ uh, practice direction uh, deals with three issues, overarching principles, terms used in the guidelines, and presumptive guidelines to be a permanent mode of proceeding in family matters. With respect to overarching principles, one, there's a discretion of the court, so that quote, the fin final determination of how an event will proceed, watch this guys, will remain subject to the discretion of the court. Secondly, access to justice. Does everyone have the necessary technology? That is key. Thirdly, self-represented litigants. They have their issues. They have their issues with technology, duty counsel assistance, inability to adequately address issues in writing. And they're in those situations, the courts are given a discretion to uh, proceed in person. In Fourthly, in-person hearings are important. In-person in advocacy equates to an essential feature of our justice system. I certainly agree. That's the way it's been done feels really good to get your gowns on and go to court and stand in front of your clients and press them. But the pomp and circumstance is great. It brings forth the gravity of the situation. But does that trump, no pun intended, does that trump the, the right to have cost-effective justice? Uh, hybrid options, the court says we should consider hybrid. Yes, we should. And, and uh, sixthly, impediments to a virtual hearing uh, in that part of the paper of the memo, I say there's nothing really convincing there. They talk about, quote, statutory security or other impediments to having a remote hearing, end quote. All this is solvable, my friends. You just need a little bit of money 
and some modest commitment to the family law system. These principles, these overarching principles discussed in the practice direction give considerable wiggle room to judges and lawyers. Uh, the next part under part three is the presumptive, there are presumptive guidelines to determine the mode of proceeding in family matters. The, I found that the child protection standards are listed separately, but they're very similar, not exactly the same, but very similar to the regular SCJ. FRO is appropriately listed uh, separately, but it's quite simple. It's all in person unless the court others, orders otherwise. And, but with refraining motions, which is a FRO matter, some of them are virtual unless the court orders otherwise. Now I have a chart. And you'll see in this chart, I give the type of appearance on the left-hand side. In the middle, I mark down what is in this SCJ consolidated practice direction. And on the right, I have a section regional notices. Now, obviously, on the right-hand column, I did not put down every regional notice. And the uh, where I have put it down, for example, the conferences uh, section there, I arbitrarily took Toronto, Oshawa, and Central West just as examples to show you where some regional regional notices differ from the consolidated practice uh, direction. Next slide, please. Just go down here. Uh, you see that I've highlighted virtual in yellow, and person in green, and writing in uh, whatever that color is, turquoise, blue. Um, so there are there are differences, there are similarities, and so the long and short of it is you really have to not only look at the consolidated practice direction, but if you do, you may go astray. You've got to look at your regional notices. You've got to look at court-specific notices. And by the way, this, uh, my, this PowerPoint, as well as my talking points, um, are available on request to uh, Shannon Martell. Just send her an email, and she'll be happy to send it out to you. I provided those two documents to her. The let's someone uh, asked about the Ontario Court of Justice earlier. I briefly answered, and here it is. They have a practice direction or notice to the profession effective 11th of October 2022. Um, and that tells us case conferences and settlement conferences in the OCJ are in person. Trial management conferences are virtual, motions are virtual. But <laughs> use the court notice finder. Use it. It's courtnoticefinder.ca. I'll go on a little bit of a limb here, and I don't get a, I don't get a bonus from the from the from the organizers of court notice finder. I think it approaches professional negligence if you don't use the court notice finder. There are so many quirks and quarks and whatever you call them with respect to different courts and different regions that looking at a provincial-wide direction, whether it's OCJ, where it is the recent SCJ, is not enough. You must use the court notice finder. And you want to be really certain, go back to the source document. It's essential tool. There are other sundry resources, and I've listed them uh, here. Uh, there, if this isn't the comprehensive list. This is just uh, a sample that uh, so you uh, that you have to click on if you're in Toronto you must click on that 
on that resource there. If you're in Central East, Central West, you must click on the relevant resource. And then in court notice file, you must check if, I don't know if, if Cochrane has a specific um, difference from Timmins, but let's say, uh, just by way of example. Now to my observations. First of all, with respect to the research, well, I thank you guys. The Beer and Bomb at All research provides a good, almost somewhat preliminary insight into the impressions of the family law bar in the province. Their study proves that the bar by and large favors virtual as the presumptive mode, particularly where council and the parties agree. Secondly, with respect to provincial standards, the consolidated provincial practice direction is a good start to settling standards. So let's give credit where credit is due. But it is crystal clear that the various regions and individual courts will not and do not feel the least bit bound by them. And creative counsel who are seeking a mode of court appearance that departs from the fiat of their region, and they use the provincial SCJ standards to argue for something else. I can hardly wait to see a reported decision on that. Thirdly, avoiding virtual. The wording of the provincial direction, as I said, gives ample wiggle room to judges who favor in-person to simply order it. So Justice Ricchetti, you're in the clear. Four, access to justice. The main goal of the ad hoc committee is to ensure widespread access to family law justice. That includes some of the following. One, reduce legal costs. Two, make both courts and legal services, whether virtual or in person, more accessible to the public. And thirdly, my pet issue, ensure procedural fairness for all. So I'll conclude with an action call. To better ensure access to justice, I call upon the Attorney General. I call upon the Ontario government. Let's throw in the Chief Justices there. Let's throw in the regional senior justices. I call upon them all to get together and to take the following steps. One, ensure availability of technology, both in and out of court. Two, ensure availability of duty counsel and other supportive services, whether we're dealing with virtual or in person. Third, Presumption, where lawyers and parties agree to virtual, that should be, in Coleman's view, pretty much a hard and fast presumption. And that should be in place right across the province. Thanks for listening to me. Those are um, excellent analysis, Gene. Thank you so much. The um... We're going to do a quick poll, and the question is, do you favor a strong presumption of virtual hearings if the, both parties agree there should be a virtual attendance? Or the, we'll call that the Gene Coleman presumption, but we're going to give everybody a moment to answer that, a couple minutes. 
And Ram, I know you have a court hearing coming at one. I hope it's not in person, but uh, I want to give you maybe 30 seconds or so while we're waiting for these poll results to come in uh, to give us your uh, reflections on the survey and also on um, the proposal put forward by Mr. Coleman. Well, thank you so much as always, Russell. I'm grateful to the uh, presenters uh, for their outstanding uh, analysis. Uh, and to add to what uh, Mr. Coleman's, as usual, expansive presentation talked about, um, I just want to add one other point, which is when we analyze the, not just the Chief Justice's uh, province-wide directions, but we, and we actually analyze each sub-region's um, directions, we find that there is some differences in between uh, various regions. So I, I think, one of the most restrictive is our central west region, because here a, a number of hearings are still resumed in person for motions, long motions, etc. So, just as an example, um, I, I had a I had to book a long motion in, in southwest, and my assumption was it's going to be in person, and then the trial coordinator said, "Oh no, absolutely not. It's by Zoom because that's the resumed mode." So. If it's possible there, it should be possible anywhere. That's all I'm saying. So that should be, while there is wiggle room, I think more can be done in terms of achieving consistency and uniformity. So okay. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Gene, I think. Uh, Thank you. Next hand up. Just, just a quick comment that I think the, what we're finding is a lot of regional diversity, and that's a strength of the system in that there's a lot of variation in terms of access to technology and so on. And that we should, at this point, we, we shouldn't be having uniformity. Right, okay. Um, let's post our results. Rachel's got her hand up. So as we look at the results, let's go to Rachel next. Uh, just quickly, almost 70% strongly agree. Uh, the remainder almost, well, we had 96% overall agree with Eugene. So I think you've hit a, You've hit the nail on the head, 2% unsure and 2% uh, disagree. Sorry to keep you waiting, Rachel. Did you want to make a comment? And then I'm going to flip it over to Brian. Yeah, no, just very quickly. I mean, as an academic, I, I just want to be sort of a, a final thought. My, a famous saying is, it all depends. I think asking a binary question, virtual versus this or in-person versus that, in my opinion or in our opinion, is a bit simplistic. Um, it really all depends. Um, you know, someone commented in the Q&A about um, immunocompromised, um, mm -hmm. whether you're a lawyer or a litigant. There's so many things that are going on that we do not know who's walking into the courtroom, who is seeing lawyers, etc. that it, you know, you really have to weigh a lot of different factors. And to simply say we should automatically do virtual or automatically do in-person um, is uh, is too simplistic. Presumptions can be rebutted. In the case of the immunocompromised, of course, that should rebut the presumption. If even one person is immunocompromised, then you have to accommodate them. Yeah, it's a presumption. I agree. This isn't a hard and fast rule, and there'll be exceptions. The it depends. You know, that's sort of the classic lawyer answer to everything. But if the presumption is remote as recommended by Gene, I take a slightly different view, but I can give Brian some time first. Then I think that's gonna improve access to justice and reduce costs. But Brian, 
I, I want to give you an opportunity to get your thoughts in here. We have uh, we have the this, the uh, the survey results. We have Jean's uh, proposal. What do you think? Yeah, I I want to first uh, thank the professors for doing this uh, research and analysis. And it, the results are not really surprising to uh, to us that who are practicing family law that uh, it does save money for the clients. Uh, and, but there is a, a section of society that doesn't have access to technology. And, uh, and as was suggested by the Chief Justice of Manitoba, uh, we need to come up with solutions for those people who don't have access to technology and uh, such as uh, um, computer hubs or, or some way of giving them access as much as possible. But I, I frankly, I feel like we're going in the right direction that there, there is, a, a, uh, at one point we were fearful that everyone would be pulled back into court, but I, I feel like uh, we're moving away from that and uh, people are starting to accept that there is some real advantages to uh, administering justice remotely and uh, that uh, family court is not a building, it's a process. And uh, we're we're moving in the the right direction, so I'm I'm happy for that. So thanks again for this research, and and we'll have to keep we'll have to see how uh, what evolves over the next uh, months and years. And in fairness to the courts and the administrators and the judges, they're having some issues with getting the technology up and running and supply chain issues and getting the courthouses. Uh, proper internet connections and all the rest of it. So there's right. a juggernaut that's not going to change overnight, but I, I certainly agree that uh, the presumption being um, remote, perhaps a few exceptions would be if somebody's liberty was uh, in, uncertain in terms of contempt hearing, uh, enforcement hearing, or um, enforcement of an order. Those would be the exceptions to the rule, in my view. The rest could be fully remote. But I want to be mindful of our time. We've got 12.59 and our host magically appears. Welcome back, mm -hmm. Shane. I want to thank Hello. everybody uh, for all their hard work and continuing to um, uh, look at the issue of presumptive hearings. In my view, it's an easy choice. The, our client's litigation budget can be stretched and it's going to improve access to justice and free up lawyers' time to serve more clients because we're not sitting around at the courthouse or in traffic. But over to you, Shannon. Right. Yes, I echo what uh, Russ said. Thank you so much to Professor Bella and Dr. Birnbaum for shedding light on this topic and conducting this survey and being here today to share the results and, and to the Family Ad Hoc uh, Steering Committee uh, for sharing your positions on this as well. And of course, we want to extend our gratitude to everyone who was listening today. We appreciate you being here. So thank you again, everyone, and we hope to host you again soon. Thank you, Shannon. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thanks to our audience for tuning in.